And we are looking at Matthew 20. Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. If you can imagine the context, the dust is still in the air of the departure of the rich young ruler who has just learned that neither his works nor his wealth are sufficient to earn him heaven. And then the Apostle Peter, so much like us that we don't like to admit it, says, well, Lord, what do we, who have given up everything to follow you, what do we get? And in response, Jesus tells Matthew 20, 1 to 16, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no harm. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, that's not fair. I mean, I know Jesus said it. It's still not fair. I mean, I can just imagine if I were to say to one of my sons, now listen, I'll give you 10 bucks uh, to clean out the garage. And uh, he started cleaning about 8 on Saturday morning. Right, one of my sons. He started cleaning about 10 on Saturday morning. <laughs> and then was joined by his brother at about 5 in the afternoon to finish the task. And I were to pay them both 10 bucks. I do not imagine that both will be happy. Somebody is going to say, that's not and you would say it too. And yet here is Jesus saying, not only 
that he is approving of this wage plan, but this is the nature of the kingdom of God. And that should actually trouble us because we expect Jesus to be fair, and we expect the kingdom of God to be fair. But what Jesus is at pains to make plain to us is the very last thing you want to say to God when you approach Him in heaven is, God, just give me what I deserve. Just be fair. You do not want God to be fair. You want God to be very merciful. You do not want to begrudge Him His generosity of heart toward you. And yet, as plain as that may be to us in this moment, we must recognize that it cuts across the grain of our common thinking, of how we think God should respond to us, perhaps on our good days, He should just be fair. It's on the days that we know we need His mercy that we need such a parable. After all, what is Jesus saying to us, in some measure, simple truths, God values all our labors, the unfairness of earth does not undo the purposes of a gracious God. So, the labor that we do, He certainly values. Verses 1 and 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard after agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day. He sent them into his vineyard. And verse 10, at the end says, and they get just what was promised. Each of them also received a denarius. God truly values the labor that starts early. What what comes early in the life of a church, what comes early in the life of believers is valuable to God. And he certainly can express even his appreciation for that labor that comes first. Uh, I have just left for uh, the leadership of the PCA, a church that I have pastored for the last 10 years. And uh, I remember in arriving at that church, one of the elders who was most helpful to me, learning the community, learning that church. And uh, just a little while ago, his, his mother went to be with the Lord. And he, he wrote me of something he had discovered about her that he did not know. He wrote me, it's been a few weeks since my mom went to be with the Lord. And now I'm seeing and hearing things about her that I previously had not, which are part of God's grace to me that I did not know. He says, I sat, as I sat in Sunday school in my mom's home church, the class teacher, who was also my high school English teacher, said something at the beginning of the class to the effect of their two women that he thought of as spiritual stalwarts in their community, Tammy Olmstead and my mother. My elder went on to write, I had never thought of mom as a spiritual stalwart, and she certainly would not have thought of herself that way. In fact, perhaps like many guys with their moms, I saw my mother as kind of an embarrassment. But Tommy, Tammy Olmstead, on the other hand, the other spiritual stalwart in the community, now she was the kind of woman 
who a boy could be proud of. She was high energy, always on the go, always inviting people into her house to hear about the Lord. I understood why Tammy was a spiritual stalwart, but not my mom. After church that day, I shared with my father what the teacher had said about my mom and Tammy Olmsted in that Sunday school class. And my father said, well, you know, your mom is the one that led Tammy Olmsted to the Lord. Which was more important, the mom or Tammy Olmsted? You would say each had their role in the planning and the purposes of God. The labor that came early as well as the labor that came late. And it's important that we recognize that because some of us are called at different times to witness, to testimony, to courage, to building a church, to extending a church, to the future of a church. God has purpose for many, all, even the labor that comes late. There's a pattern here. Verse 3 makes it obvious. The master goes out about the third hour. So we would say in Jewish timekeeping, that's about 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Verse 5, going out again about the sixth hour, that's noontime. About the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, he did the same. Verse 6, about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing and said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? No matter what time of day they began working, they were valued by the master. It's sometimes interesting to read the commentators trying to explain why everybody got the same set of wages no matter the time of day they started. You have some conjecture, well, in this vineyard, it must have been the harvest time, and there must have been a storm coming later that day, and so the master has to get all, you know, or this is a very special kind of grapes in the Holy Land, and it ripens just within the few hours where the sugar content is just right. So you have to... And I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> Nobody knows. I mean, the, the answer is actually within the text, verse 14. What does the master say? I choose to give the last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? If it really is true that the early labor and the late labor are of equal value to God, then the message to us clearly is that no matter whether we're starting early or late, no one can say, I'm too late to the job. I'm done. I'm finished. No, the late labor can be just as valuable. Um, as sometimes happens, the church that I last served, um, the pastor who had built uh, the foundation uh, not the foundation, had built the facility uh, with several million dollars of debt, left, and I'm the new pastor coming in. And I would have to tell you, as I came in, we had a level of debt that was crushing us. We were not able to afford the staff that we needed. We were not able to do the ministry that we needed. The debt was literally crushing us. And so the elders said, we, we have to try to do something. And so we made a special appeal to our people, can we try to relieve the major portion of this debt far more quickly than we had anticipated, which was a 30-year mortgage, 
so that we can actually function as a church and maybe exist until our 30th year. One of the key persons that helped us was named Evelyn Nolte. At that time, Evelyn Nolte was in her late 80s and living in assisted living. But she came on the testimony that day where we making special appeal to our people, and this is what she said. She said, my pledge is not to be fulfilled for three years. But I'm afraid that if I wait, I won't be around to make it. So I'm giving my pledge right now. Now, I must tell you, hers was not a very large pledge. But as a consequence, we paid off in seven years a 30-year loan. And there is not a person in that church that did not believe that her testimony in her late 80s was key to allowing that church to have the ministry that it needed to reach far and wide. It touches your church. I mean, among the persons that we hired was Kenny Hayes, who now is campus outreach being supported by this church to minister to college campuses in this region. And part of what Evelyn Nolte is blessing new generations here, even as it did us. She didn't say, well, it's late, so I'm done. There's nothing for me to do, really. No, the late labor was just as early as the, just as important as the early labor. We always have to say that in an established church because of the way the generations can perceive each other. There are those who will think, well, I'm a foundation generation, so, you know, ours was the most important. There are those who say, I'm the future, so we're the most important. And God is saying, to each his time and to each his labor, and all are to be valued. Uh, as I seek leading a denomination now, I have to be reminded and remind others from time to time. Yes, we have founders. That, that is so important and that is so critical. And we have builders the ones who built this denomination. And now having such an established denomination that the Lord has blessed so abundantly, we have multipliers. Each for its purpose, each in its time, according to the planning and purpose of the Holy Spirit, each valuable. When you see things that way, you begin to understand that God is saying, I need laborers for my vineyard. Because all the labor is important for my purposes. And it's not just the labor, as though God is just valuing the tasks done. If there's anything being said here, it's that the persons are as important as the tasks. And so we are being reminded not just that the labor is equally important to God, but that the laborers are equally important to the Lord. I mean, again, clearly, there are those who add much. Verse 10 reminds us, those who have been working all day, they receive their denarius. Those who have given a lifetime to the Lord, they, they hear that, well done, good and faithful servant. All you have done, all the contribution, all the labor for God's purposes is value, and God values you for having done it. You are precious to Him. If you're in a church that has endured a, a generation or two of faithful people, you begin to be able to see the ripple effects of lives. Uh, the first church that I ever pastored, during the time that I pastored it, celebrated its 175th anniversary. 
uh, a church that had many generations. And uh, among the people uh, related to that church was uh, an older woman who had taught Sunday school for 60 years. Her name was Ruth Bullion. You, you may know her cousins, Beef and Chicken. And um, the local paper uh, carried her story at some point. Ruth Bullion was hesitant to talk about the rare accomplishment of teaching Sunday school for 60 years. Her initial reaction when we asked for her story was, you can talk about it when I'm gone. <laughs> she finally agreed upon the condition that it would be made clear that everything she had done was through the strength and ability given to her by the Holy Spirit and not in her own strength. She wrote, I started teaching when I was 17 and knew almost immediately that it was God's calling on my life to work with little children. Ruth took teaching as a nearly full-time avocation, starting early in each week to prepare for the following Sunday. She said, because nothing is more of more importance than that for which God has called you, and teaching little ones was what He called me to do. Sixty years in a small rural community. And um, I admire it, but I also testify to the significance of it. In that first little rural church that I pastored, uh, I went single. I left married because <laughs> I met my wife there. And as we have left in these recent months, uh, the church that I pastored for the last decade, lots of people, uh, as they're searching for their new pastor, still call us, still try to connect. And uh, one um, was somebody who called my wife. And uh, Kathy has just been great ministering to young moms with the large heart that my wife has. And she was ministering to a young mom, mother of five, whose husband had a recently diagnosed brain tumor. So here's a mom, five children, and her husband in the hospital with a brain tumor. And she's calling my wife. And I listened to my wife on the phone talking about God's faithfulness and the ability to depend upon Him in the hardest of times, to trust the one who sent His Savior. And I'm listening to my wife speaking in the kitchen to the woman in the church that we have left, but what I'm actually hearing is the echo of Ruth Bullion touching my wife, touching this mom, touching her children's generation. And I hear God's well done, good and faithful servant for that early laborer who God used so profoundly in my life, in the life of so many more. It's not just that God is blessing us by making us a part of what He's doing. He's actually rescuing us from ourselves. The words go by so fast that we almost miss them. Verse 2 Going out about the third hour, the master saw others standing idle in the workplace. You see it again in verse 6, toward the end. The master said to those who were there at the eleventh hour in the marketplace, Why do you stand here idle all day? It's not just that those laborers are valued when they start early because they're doing the master's work. They're being rescued from idle. They're being rescued from doing nothing. 
Do you remember how Peter tells us that, that we have been redeemed from an empty way of life? That if you are a child of God, if both the early work and the late work is valued, then you have been rescued from doing nothing. As though it doesn't count, it doesn't matter. Remember how the Apostle Paul will say it at the end of 1 Corinthians, stand firm. Let nothing move you, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not foolish. It's not useless. And we have to say that at times to one another. There are people perhaps in this very congregation who say, I'm, I'm all alone in commitment to this marriage. It's useful. It's useless. It hasn't made any difference just not doing anything. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There are those who say, trying to be pure seems absolutely silly among my peers. It's useless. I'm not accomplishing anything except depriving myself. And the Lord says it's not in vain. You're not doing nothing. There may be those here who say, I'm totally alone in operating with integrity at my job. Others do not. The company actually teaches us how to take advantage in order to add to our wages. My integrity actually will get me in trouble. This is useless. God says, no. It is not in vain. You are not doing nothing. You've been rescued from that. There may be young people who are thinking, everybody else is thinking about how big a name they can make or how much money they can make, but I'm actually thinking about serving God on the mission field in a way that I know will go unrecognized and unrewarded in this life. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You have been rescued from doing nothing. When God teaches us that, He's reminding us that, yes, there is value for those who add much to the kingdom. They've worked a long time. But because the, the measure of reward is equal for those who start early or late, we're also learning that God is saying, I value those, even value them just as much as those who've worked all their lives for me. I value those who add little to the work of the kingdom. I mean, verse 9, as strange as it is, when those who were hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. What, what is the lesson? Heaven is undoing our economy the currency with which we evaluate the value of others, even those who came late and did little, are valued as much. If you think about what testimony is told most frequently to us as a Christian culture of, of God saving people who do not deserve it, what comes immediately to your mind? It is the thief on the cross who had maybe only moments of faithfulness to God to live and yet, over and over again, we encourage one another with the account of the thief on the cross. If he could be saved, if that very day he would be with Jesus in paradise, then, then there is hope for those who come late in life 
again, you've got mature believers here, and you recognize, many of you, that sometimes those of us who are elders, pastors, mature believers in the church, some that we struggle the most to encourage are those who have come to faith in their adult years, maybe even in their mature adult years, and they are so thankful for the grace of God, but they cannot help but feel guilty for raising their children when as believers, as adults, they were not yet believers. I'm so glad Jesus saved me, but, but I didn't raise my children know the Lord. And we feel so bad about that. But, but what if we said, no, listen, if God has saved you late in life, you are a banner of the grace of God, a, a lighthouse in, in the stormy seas of life for other people to say, it's not too late to turn from danger. Look at me. God saved me. And perhaps you are a lighthouse to your own adult children where the Holy Spirit, knowing their hearts and their lives and what's proper, raised you up to be that lighthouse at this very time, late in life, knowing for you or for a neighbor or your own children, it was the most critical, vital time for God to show the banner of grace that you are. He knows what He's doing. The Holy Spirit is working as He knows is right and best, and we trust Him. And we do so because we recognize he is valuing the early work and the late work, and he can use both, even those who may not seem to have much to add. And, and that's young people, too, right? It's not just people late in life coming to the Lord. You know, if everybody was like me, you know, a good Sunday school boy, <laughs> then people who did not learn who Jesus was as a child would think, well, there's no hope for me. But when God can call the thief on the cross, there's always hope. And if he can call you in Sunday school, then he can use you your whole life long, too. Early work, late work. Those who add much, those who add little. What may be most significant in the passage is God can even use those who subtract from his purposes. Verse 13, I love. Because after we recognize that there were people grumbling that the master had been generous. Verse 13, he replies to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. You have to remember the context of this. There are those grumbling at the graciousness of the master. Well, we did so much more. How can you be nice to them who did so much less? And for those who are grumbling at the grace of God, Jesus addresses them as friend. Do you remember what got us into this passage? There's this apostle, his name is Peter. <laughs> well, Lord, what do we get who've given up everything to follow you? It's important you have to know how this passage concludes. Yes, verse 16, the last will be first and the first last, and then this little appendix. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. 
but not until one apostle has denied him three times. Who will do that kind of subtracting to the work of the Lord? Uh, that would be Peter. who has grumbled against the graciousness of God and now so desperately needs it. And when you desperately need the grace of God, what does Jesus call you? Friend. Add a lot. Add a little. Even subtract. And we do not begrudge the generosity of the Master, but say, God, be merciful to me. I need you. Thank you for loving me beyond my labors and valuing all I can give. I spent a lot of time in China. Maybe some of you do too. It's getting harder and harder, harder and harder. Um, one of the people that we sponsor uh, was there recently, businessman, kind of goes under the radar. And he reported this last summer ministering to... Um, a young girl who he'd kind of met in some of his business activities, and he began to talk to her because he heard her humming a tune. The tune Amazing Grace. He said to her, do you, do you know what you're humming? Do you know what grace is? And uh, the young woman said, I, I, I don't know. Our English is a second language. Our English teacher uh, taught us the song, but couldn't tell us what it meant. He explained it to her, what it meant to have the grace for a wretch like me. And she accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, somehow that businessman met the teacher a little bit later the same summer. Asked her, do you remember teaching your students uh, 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 amazing grace? And the teacher said, I remember. But you know, the government watchers were paying so much attention to us in the class, we could not tell the students what grace meant. She said, I felt so useless. Said the businessman, the Holy Spirit used it. I was able to tell her. When the businessman told us about that, he was showing us a video of... Um, life in China these days. And actually what he showed was just a little clip of various ministries, but kind of unrelated what Chinese people are doing. He actually showed a group of young people in an amusement park in China singing a Western song. You get only one guess what song they were singing. Amazing Grace. That saved a wretch like me. Why a wretch? Because whether we add a lot or a little or even subtract, there is grace for a wretch like me by a Savior who will call me his friend. And you too, friend, bless the God who is more generous than we could earn and loves to call us his own. Father, I thank you that you are building your church your way. And you do so through people like us who sometimes are able to add a lot to your purposes and sometimes not much. Sometimes we even detract. And yet there is grace, mercy rich and free 
for people even like us. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus and being merciful to such as we. Help us to be that fountain of your grace for those who need to hear it, young or old, new to the faith, long in the faith, new to our church, long in the church. Use us, we pray, to make the grace of God known. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.